Hebrews chapter 10. We will focus on verse 22, but we'll read from 19 to 25. So let's read the word of the Lord together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious triune God, what a blessing it is to know you, to know that you are perfect in all that you do and glorious in all of your ways. You are sovereign and you are good. Pray that we would get a greater insight into who you are today, that your word would speak, your spirit would work in our hearts to help us to worship you as you deserve, that it would bring about conviction and repentance, that it would strengthen those that are weak and weary. And God, that you would give us joy, lasting joy to praise you and to proclaim your goodness to the rest of this world. Father, we live in a time, as always, because of sin in this world that is desperate for hope. Help us be messengers of peace and hope to this lost and dying world. Give us worshipful hearts as we read your word and sing your word and see your word through the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was driving by Frontier High School, and without even thinking of it, I actually almost turned into the parking lot. Uh, has anybody else had this experience? Oh, it's just me. Okay, good. I guess I should have picked a different introduction. Um, well, yeah, I, I didn't even think about it. I just started to turn and I wasn't even thinking about it, but it, it made me kind of think about life at Frontier. It was, it was such a great thing to reminisce and think about all that the Lord had done there. The times that we heard the word together, saying the word, the times that we sent out our missionaries all the times the kids would run down the aisles and, and we would just rejoice in the blessing of, of being together in one room. It's just such a blessing to think about all that God did there. And as I thought about it, it just kind of suddenly hit me that we'll probably never be there again. That it might be a really long time before we can meet without health concerns or live streams or service registrations or, or sealed communion cups. It might be a really long time before we meet in what we used to consider to be a normal service. I don't know if anybody's counting, but next Tuesday, March 8th, will officially be six months since our last corporate worship service at Frontier High School. 
felt a lot longer than that to me. I miss it dearly. And please don't get me wrong. I am so thankful that we are here. So thankful that we have this place to meet, to sing. And I'm so thankful for how your grace groups have cared for each other in this time. How you pulled together and prayed for each other and shepherded each other through this. It's been a blessing to see. And that's one aspect of what this pandemic has brought that I'm thankful for. But if we're honest, I think we all feel that there's something missing. Something's just not quite right. And the danger for us in times like these is is to forget what corporate worship really is. To forget what corporate worship should always be, no matter the circumstances. And the temptation, at least for us, is to find some kind of quick or pragmatic or or temporary solution or band-aid just to get back what we lost. Just to get to a place where we're, we're comfortable with it and we get back something that we love and that we're familiar with. Instead of asking ourselves, how can we honor the Lord right now? How do we worship God today under our current circumstances? We even might be tempted to believe, well, you know what? If we just had a better governor or president or live somewhere else, then we can worship the Lord. Or if we can just all get over the health concerns and, and just this pandemic will be over, then, then we can really get back to worshiping the Lord. Or if we can just get a building. If we just get a place of our own where we make the own rules, where we don't have to be kicked out, then we can worship the Lord. But are any of these things necessary for corporate worship? If not, then what is necessary? What should worship look like today, tomorrow, in a, in a pandemic in Indonesia and in India or in Bakersfield? What should corporate worship look like for believers at all times? Hebrews will help us answer these very important questions today. In fact, Hebrews, um, if you know, if you've been following along, the audience of Hebrews is actually dealing with very similar struggles in a way. These were Jewish Christians. They walked away from the Jewish faith to follow Jesus, but it got difficult. It got hard. They were experiencing suffering and persecution, and they longed for the good old days. They longed for the way things used to be. Can you relate to that? In their case, they were longing for the the external glory of the old covenant, the temple and the tabernacle and the priests and all the sacrifices. And the internal, ordinary, normal worship of the new covenant, just, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel sufficient. It didn't seem like Jesus would be enough. But the writer of the book of Hebrews has been telling them over and over, no, you're missing the point. That's not what those things were for. They were to point to the one who would come to fulfill all of those things. They were types and shadows. They were never meant to help you draw near to God on your own. They were never meant to wash away your sins. No, you need the great high priest, the final sacrifice. And his name is Jesus, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And the author of Hebrews has been giving us this wonderful theology for 10 chapters, all about the supremacy and the glory of Christ, that Jesus is better. And verses 19 and 21 are the perfect summary of that, aren't they? They tell us that through Christ, we have access to God, through his body, through the shed blood. And not only do we have access to God, he still ministers to us as our great high priest. 
That we are welcomed into the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done. That's the church's one foundation that we've been spending some time on lately. But now, in verse 22, we're going to switch gears. Switch gears in a big way. It's actually a very pivotal point in the book of Hebrews because it's like Paul's books. Most of his books, there's a chapter where he just switches gears and he moves from theology to practice. Right? From exposition to exhortation. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to do the same thing in this verse. He's moving from the privileges of the church, all that we have in Christ, to now the responsibilities of the church, the duties of the church, the characteristics of the church. And we get these in three let us statements in a row. Three let us statements that really summarize the rest of the book of Hebrews. Look at verse 22. It's the first let us statement. It's let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what? Faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another in love. You see the three commands? Draw near, hold fast, stir up. How? In faith, in hope, and in love. And those last three words are the summary of the rest of the book. Chapter 11 is all about faith, delighting in the Lord, looking to his work. Chapter 12 is about hope and perseverance, about proclaiming and declaring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then chapter 13 is about loving the church, loving the people of God, developing in godliness. And so today we're going to really focus on, on that first let us statement, the faith part, and let us draw near. That's the first part, verse 22, right? And this is what I don't want you to miss this morning, this morning, this afternoon, right? <laughs> probably never get used to that. When I do, we'll move to mornings probably, right? We are call, being called here to draw near to God. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near. What exactly does that mean? It sounds a little vague, but if you've been following along in Hebrews, this has been a repeated phrase throughout the book, hasn't it? He's used this many times in the book of Hebrews, and he uses it in different ways. But the primary way he uses this phrase is to talk about the goal of our salvation. The purpose for which we are saved is to draw near to God. Look at chapter 7. Flip back to chapter 7 with me. Keep your finger in 10 there. Chapter 7, verse 19. Chapter 7, 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. How is this hope better? Through which we draw near to God. Christ has brought us into the very presence of God. That's the goal of our salvation, the end of his work. Look at verse 25 in the same chapter, chapter 7. Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So in a very real way, you can characterize a Christian as those who draw near to God, to have this intimacy and communion with God. But this draw near idea is all over scripture. We read a Psalm today that has it. Look at Psalm, uh, you don't have to look, let me just read this. Psalm 73. This is all over the Psalms in many ways, but Psalm 73 says this. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. 
this desire to be close in communion with God. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And even in the New Testament, James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a wonderful promise. You know, every single one of these draw near ideas is related back to one specific promise of God. When he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what we lost in the garden, isn't it? Communion, that closeness, that drawing near to God. And that's what Christ has come to restore. Now, there is one book in the Bible that talks about drawing near more than any other book, even more than Hebrews. I bet it's a surprise which book. It's the book of Leviticus. It might be a surprise to us, but if we think about it, Leviticus is really the backdrop to the book of Hebrews, isn't it? All the details about the law and the priests and the sacrifices, they're all in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, in one way, is is really the manual for corporate worship in the Old Covenant. It gives us the way we draw near to God under the law. And it points through types and shadows to the final fulfillment of all those things in Christ. And so what does all this mean? What does drawing near really mean? Well, in light of all these things, drawing near is an invitation for corporate worship. It's the end goal of salvation. But it's this idea idea to draw near to God in worship. What does that look like? That's what Hebrews will help us understand. And I want to break this passage into four parts. I like alliteration, so they're all C's. I don't know if that helps you. It does help me. Um, So here you go. Draw near to God in worship. We're going to do that corporately, candidly, confidently, and cleansed. Corporately, candidly, confidently, and cleansed. I know that last one sounds weird in the past tense, but I promise there's a reason for that. You just have to trust me when we get there. So first of all, let's draw near to God corporately. What is that even talking about? Look at verse 22 again. This one's actually a really easy one to spot. All you have to do is ask, well, who's being asked to draw near? Right? What does it say? Let us, not you or me individually, but let us, plural, draw near. In fact, this whole passage is plural. Look up to verse 19. Look up to verse 19 and listen to this this passage and all these descriptions of the church. It's not singular once. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, then as a result, let us draw near. You might think, well, big deal. He's using us and we a lot. But there's, there's an important idea here that you, don't, that you can't miss. That's that corporate worship is in fact corporate. It involves other people. It involves the body of believers coming together physically for worship. Please hear this. Drawing near to God was never meant to be done alone. Drawing near to God was never designed to be done alone. But it's so easy to forget in our individualistic culture, isn't it? It's not what we're taught about anything. I've heard so many Christians say things like, well, you know what? I, I worship God so much better at the beach. I would say that too if I lived in Bakersfield and got tired of the heat, right? I worship God so much better at the beach or in the mountains at the Grand Canyon. 
But you know when I really feel close to God? When it's just me, my Bible, and Jesus. I just got to get alone. I just got to get some of my quiet time. That's where I draw near to God. And look, I'm not trying to, to knock these things. I love the mountains and the beach. I love my time alone in prayer and in scripture. But brothers and sisters, if this is the standard for worship, if this is what drawing near means, then Christians throughout history are in huge trouble. Because most Christians never had their own Bible. They didn't have a Bible to to go off into nature and contemplate um, the scriptures alone with. You know how Christians drew near to God for centuries without quiet times? They went to church. They drew near together with God's people. They regularly gathered for corporate worship to hear the word read, to see the word preached and commune with one another, to sing together, to participate in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Look, time alone with God is a wonderful thing. Individual spiritual disciplines are great, but they were never meant to replace or to compete with corporate worship. Never meant to do that. Never designed to do that. You may notice that you're never commanded to have a quiet time. Not once. Never commanded to go stare off into the ocean. Not once. But you are commanded to gather to corporate worship. All of us are. And this verse shows us that. Right? Let us. But not just that. The draw near. It's kind of hard to tell in English. But draw near is, is a present verb. It's, it's continuous. So this idea is let us draw near continually regularly, consistently drawing near to God together. Do you realize what a privilege that is? What a privilege it is to be able to draw into God's presence together? Think about corporate worship in the old covenant. It was so symbolic that the people had to draw near with the high priest. They would go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people The people were drawing near to God. They were doing it, but they were doing it through these types and through these shadows. They had to go to an actual place, a temple, the tabernacle. They had to go to a place to worship God, to to bring sacrifices. But in Christ, that's all changed. We have access to God in Christ regularly. We don't have to wait till the day of atonement. We can draw into God's presence together. In fact, we do that every single week. We do that together. We can do that from anywhere. It doesn't have to be in our own building. It doesn't have to be in Bakersfield. It can be in a tent somewhere. We get to draw near to God together. And it's not just one of us at a time. You know, when the veil was ripped in two, it's such a glorious reality. It's not that the veil was, was taken down for a time. And then when sin comes out, we'll just put the veil back up. Or a a hole was cut in the veil and so only a couple people can get through. No, the idea is that because the veil was torn in two, because Jesus' body was broken for us, sinners like us have access to God anywhere, anytime. And we're being called, commanded to draw near to God together. What could we possibly have on a Sunday that's more important or valuable than that? Nothing, right? Whatever you were thinking, it's all wrong. Nothing. Nothing. It's an incredible privilege, but by God's grace, it's not just a privilege. It's actually even a means of grace together, isn't it? It can help us worship God. Look down to verse 24, the same passage, chapter 10. We'll get here in a couple weeks, but I just want to mention it for now. 
Verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works. Well, that sounds pretty good. How can we make each other, help each other be more loving, more godly? Someone should write a book on this. Someone probably has. How can we do this? Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. How do we grow in holiness? What tool has God used to help us grow in love for each other and for God? Going to church. It's one of the primary means God uses to sanctify us, to mold us into the image of his son. Well, brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how many times I've experienced worship as a means of grace. This may come as a shock to you, but there are days, times where I don't feel like coming here. Where I'm just, I'm tired, exhausted, especially at three o'clock, right? Or five o'clock. You're like, oh, that's way out of the picture, right? I just, I'm not focused. I'm distracted. And just being around the body of Christ helps me draw near. Hearing the sermon, hearing the liturgy, seeing the Psalms, seeing the kids belt out their heart before the Lord draws me into the presence of worship without even knowing it. You guys are saying, come along with me. Draw near to God with me. And through the process of worship, God uses that as a means of grace to help me draw near. Oh, corporate worship is a privilege and a means of grace. I'm so thankful God has given it to us. And that's point number one. Worship should be corporate. And point number two is this. We draw near to God candidly. Look back at verse 22. Verse 22. Let us draw near how? With a true heart. True heart. Now, some of your translations may say sincere. I forgot which ones those were. I think it might have been NIV. Um, thought about this a lot. I don't think sincere is a helpful word. And the reason why is I think a lot of us, when we hear sincere, we think of sincere feelings, right? Sincere feelings. And this idea might be, well, you can draw near to God when you're feeling like it, right? And I've actually heard pastors and music leaders say things like this. Look, don't sing this song if you don't feel it. I think, I wouldn't sing a lot, I guess. Um, I've heard I've heard sermons where pastors will say, "Look, if you obey, and your heart's not in it, you're not feeling like it. You're just being a hypocrite." And I think, "Wow, Lord, I pray they never get depressed. So you never feel like obeying when you're depressed. Look, obeying when you don't feel like it is not hypocrisy. It's faithfulness. It's integrity." Hypocrisy is not going against your feelings. It's going against your beliefs, what you affirm to be true, what you teach other people. This verse is not saying draw near to God only when you feel like it. Once you have a sincere heart, then you qualify for worship. That's not it at all. This idea is with a true heart, a genuine heart, a honest heart, a candid heart. Draw near to God with your whole heart, with integrity. It's really the opposite of the false heart, right, that we hear about in Isaiah 29 with the false prophets. Jesus quotes this as well. Listen to this. This people draw near with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is why Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. 
Because they were trying to draw near when they didn't feel like it? No. Because they were trying to draw near on their own standards, by their own merits, by their own works. They were saying one thing and then doing another. They were drawing near to God formally or legally or hypocritically. Well, this is a real danger for us, isn't it? Especially if we attempt to, we seek to gather corporately, regularly, and honor the Lord. We can be so tempted to try to gather legally or formally. To think that, you know what, if, if I have the right works or the right intentions or the right spiritual disciplines or the right religious habits, then I've earned the, the right to stand before God, right? Or if I participate in the sacraments, if I take communion or if I get baptized, then I, I can stand before God and worship, right? It's so tempting to try to earn our way into the presence of God. It's also tempting to draw near hypocritically, isn't it? To cover up our sin. To put on a show for everybody at church. To say the right words. To seemingly do the right things. But inside we harbor unrepentant habitual sin. We can even go as far as to think, well, you know what? I fooled everybody else. I could probably fool God. That sounds insane when we say it out loud, but that's where our heart goes, doesn't it? And if that's you today, if you are struggling with drawing near to God hypocritically, falsely, instead of truly, you need to know there's nowhere to hide. God will not be mocked. Every single one of us will have to give an account for everything we do. Jesus said himself, everything that is hidden will be made known. Anything that is done in secret will be brought into the light and judged. If we try to draw near to God formally, legally, hypocritically, then there's hell to pay. But the good news is that God already knows our depravity. He knows the depth of our depravity better than we do, and he still invites us to draw near to him. He still calls us to draw near. So there's no hiding There's no covering it up with God. All we have to do is to draw near repentantly, truly, candidly before him. To draw near in repentance saying, not the labors of my hands I bring. Could Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing I can do can add to this. There's nothing left to hide. So I draw near to God candidly, truly. And that's number two. Thirdly, we need to draw near to God confidently. Look at the verse 22 again. Draw near to God confidently. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This can feel like the opposite of the last one, right? Instead of drawing near hypocritically or pridefully, falsely, instead of having a true heart, this is for those of us that struggle. And it could be the same person, by the way. We can go from hypocrite to to this lack of assurance real quick, can't we? It's for those of us that struggle with fear and doubt, assurance of faith, wondering if Jesus is really enough, wondering if we can really truly ever be forgiven enough to appear before God. Oh, these are the people who, when you read full assurance of faith, you're like, that's it, I'm done. That's not me. A little bit of faith 
at times, sometimes some assurance, but full assurance of faith? No way. There's no way I can do that. How much assurance is that? How much faith do we actually need? Well, chapter 11 will help us understand so much more about what faith looks like. But let me just try to briefly explain the relationship here between faith and assurance. It's one that we really get mixed up a lot. You see, faith is essential for a believer. Every believer has faith. They trust in the Lord with this childlike trust in the finished work of Christ. Every believer has that. It's a gift of God. It's actually the instrument that God uses to save us, to transfer our unrighteousness to Jesus and his righteousness to us. It's by faith. It's essential for salvation. But assurance for a believer, well, sadly, that can come and go at times, can't it? Don't get me wrong. There's an objective part to assurance. Our salvation is as secure as Jesus is in heaven. As he sits by the throne, that's where our salvation lies. That's where our hope is in his finished, completed work. But our experience of that, our ability to trust in that, can come and go, can't it? We're prone to doubt and despair when Satan tells us of the guilt within. We struggle to believe the gospel and to lay hold of the promises that are given to us in God. We can feel at a distance from God. We can struggle with assurance. But a true believer always has faith, even though it might be weak at times. There's still a remnant of that faith. And so what do we do if we struggle with assurance? Where do we find assurance of faith if it's really hard for us? Well, I hope you know that you don't look inside. I think you've heard that enough from us. Let me tell you what Calvin says about that. This might surprise you. Calvin says, if you want to look inside yourself for assurance, here's what he says. If you contemplate yourself, that is sure damnation. (laughs) Wow, right? Why don't you tell us what you really think, Calvin? Uh, You contemplate yourself, that is sure damnation. Well, where do we look? But since Christ has been imparted to you with all his benefits, that all things are made yours, that you are made a member of him, indeed one with him, his righteousness overwhelms your sins. His salvation wipes out your condemnation. And his worthiness, he intercedes that your unworthiness may not come before the sight of God. There's no hope when we look within. You won't find assurance here. You have to look outward to the finished work of Christ. That is our hope. It lies in heaven for us. He is the final sacrifice. He is the assurance. But at times that can be really hard to do, right? I know this can be difficult to to see. I want to try to illustrate this to maybe help you understand it a little bit more. We've been studying Exodus through grace groups and I heard this story a few weeks back, and it's helped me understand assurance in a, a different way. So I want, imagine for a second that there are two households in Egypt on the night before the Passover. Right? Two Jewish households. They're trusting in the Lord. And what would happen in both of these households is the father would, would gather their family together, would take the lamb and, and sacrifice the lamb would drain the blood and they would eat the Passover meal and the father would take his family outside and they would go to the door and take the blood and they'd put it on the door. And as they put it on the door, they would point to the blood and they would tell their family, because of this blood, we are utterly safe from the angel of death. 
We are secure from death because of this sacrifice. And as each family sees the blood, they realize what's being said. They go back inside, and, and the father goes and tucks his kids into bed, says goodnight. And as they, they go to bed, and they're just about ready to settle down, in the first household, the oldest son has a little bit of trouble falling asleep. But he thinks about the blood, thinks about the sacrifice, and he's able to rest soundly all night because he knows the sacrifice is enough. He trusts in the sacrifice. But in the second house, about 10 minutes after the kids are put to bed, the oldest son comes knocking at the door. He comes into the parents' bedroom and he tells his dad, Dad, I'm scared. I know the angel of death is coming and I'm the one that's supposed to die. How do I know that I will be saved? How do I know that I won't die? Should I, should I pray more? Should I go through scripture? Should I tell my siblings sorry one more time? What do I do to make sure that I, I know I can be saved? And a terrible father would say, you know what? You just need to get over your fear. We've done everything we could. Just go back to bed. Or a terrible father would say, you know what? You, you probably should pray. Right? Recite scripture, say you're sorry. God kind of likes that stuff. A terrible father would give his son law or false assurance or say, just get over your fear. But what would a good father do? A good father would say, come with me. And he would walk his son to the door and he would point to the blood and say, there is your hope. There is your assurance. This sacrifice is for you. Because the sacrifice is made, you cannot be killed because God is just. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. You are utterly safe because of this shed blood. And a good father would take his son to the door as many times as he got up that night. Now, in both of these households, were either of the boys in, in more danger? No. Both of them were secure in the sacrifice itself. One struggled with assurance and one didn't. But what's the solution to those that are struggling with assurance and even to the ones that don't? It's looking to the blood of the sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, it's the same with us. If we lack confidence, if we lack assurance, our only hope is to look to the finished work of Jesus. That's where we find assurance of faith. So we draw near to God corporately, candidly, confidently, and lastly, we draw near to God cleansed. Verse 22 again. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, it's really easy to study these and think, you know what? These feel like conditions. Like I have to gather with the body corporately. And honestly and candidly and truly and with full assurance of faith. And then I have the right to worship God. That's not what this is. These are characteristics of worship, which we fight for. We repent of as we try to seek these out. There is one condition in this list, though. And it's this last one. And the wonderful news is it's already been met. We have already been cleansed. Did you notice that? Look at the tense of these words. You've been sprinkled clean. 
Your body have been washed. And we don't see this in English, but these words aren't just in the past tense. They're actually in a passive form. It hasn't even been done by us in the past. So the better translation would be having had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, having had our bodies washed with pure water. These descriptions have already been done. And we know this to be true, don't we? We've studied this in Hebrew, the sprinkling of the blood. Turn back to chapter 9 real quick. Chapter 9 talks about this blood cleansing us from all the sin. Because the law couldn't do it, the sacrifice couldn't do it, so Christ's blood is what cleanses us. Hebrews 9.13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a hefter sanctify for the purification of the flesh... Just the outside is purified by the blood. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ's blood alone can cleanse us from an evil conscience, can cleanse us from the inside out. And it's already been accomplished. He's already given that sacrifice in the Holy of Holies before the presence of God Almighty. That is a done deal for believers. We have been purified. Our consciences have been cleansed. Our heart is made new in Jesus. But that's not the rest of the verse. Look at the last part of the verse. Our bodies were washed with pure water. Well, what's that about? The conscience is the inside. The bodies are the outside. What's he talking about here? Well, some of us might think, well, that's, that's baptism, right? Our bodies washed. And that's a good inclination if you're thinking that way, but it's not, not quite right. It's not that baptism is a condition to draw near, is it? That we have to be baptized, then we can appear before God. But think about what baptism pictures. The washing away of our sins, the deadness to sins, and the life and the resurrection in Christ, the cleansing of all of us. And I think what the writer of the book of Hebrews is referring to is all the way back in Ezekiel 36. You don't have to turn there, but let me read a a passage. This is talking about the new covenant and what the spirit does for us in the new covenant. Listen to how it's described. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Complete washing away of sins. What the law and the old covenant could never do. But in Christ, it's complete washing away. I think there's one more thing that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at here. We learn in Leviticus that the the high priest does two things before entering the temple. Anybody know what they are? They make a sacrifice for themselves and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to clear their conscience, and they wash their entire body. This picture of internal cleansing and external cleansing, to say, I am completely cleansed of evil and sin. I can appear before God. And what the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling us, that in Christ, you have been cleansed like a high priest. Your sin have been completely wiped away. You are qualified to go into the very presence of God. In Christ. Isn't that wonderful news? What do we do in response to that? We draw near. We draw near corporately, candidly, confidently because we are cleansed. I know some of you are probably thinking, well, 
That's great news. I need to hear that. But that was the worst building campaign sermon ever. <laughs> Didn't mention the building once. In fact, you barely even talked about a building. There's a reason for that. This is all about corporate worship, which is essential to the church. But did you notice something missing? No mention of a building. No mention of a place. And that's all because of Jesus. We don't have to draw near to the temple or a tabernacle or to a certain location in Bakersfield to draw near to God. We could do it in a gym. We could do it in somebody's front yard. We could do it in another church as we have been. We can gather to worship in Indonesia, in Papua New Guinea, in Bakersfield, wherever God calls us. And if we gather together corporately, candidly, confidently, because we are cleansed. Brothers and sisters, as we think about the building, I want to remind you what Jesus taught us in John 4. You don't have to turn there. This is what he's teaching the woman at the well about the new covenant. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Do you think we have to worship there and the other people have to, have to worship here? Well, the hour is coming when you won't need a place. You won't need a spot to go. You don't have to make a religious pilgrimage to appear before God. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and in truth. As we move forward thinking about a building and we make decisions and figure out details and ask you guys to weigh in, please pray that at the end of the day, we don't have a building and lose the church. That we don't gain a building and forget how to worship our Lord. Pray that we never lose sight of what corporate worship is. And because we are cleansed, we can continue to gather corporately, candidly, confidently in him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful reality of what your son has accomplished. Because he lived the life that we failed to live, because he died for us in our place and shed his blood, Lord, we are qualified to stand before you because of his work. We are cleansed. And we get the privilege to gather together, to draw near to you together in full assurance of faith and with a true heart because of what your son has done. Father, help us to rejoice in these truths. Help us to draw near, to fight the evils of sin and pride in our own heart and to find joy and peace as we draw near to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.